Modern economic theory would have you believe that if you squandered all your income plus some, net-net, you're doing a common good. Keynesian general theory places aggregate demand as the primary driver of productive output gains. A summing up of the leftist Keynesian fantasy world of economics can be found in a CNN interview that the left's political shell, Nobel Prize winner, and fake economist Paul Krugman conducted back in August of 2011 in which he half facetiously called for a false flag alien invasion posed by government so that they could justify massive spending. In the interview, Krugman admits that, well, productive spending is better, but then declares wasteful spending also to be good and better than nothing. As a quick side note, ironically, recently, more recently, Paul Krugman, who at the time of the interview just mentioned, also took the position that private spending that was either wholly or partially wasteful was also a good thing, is now concerned with Donald Trump's $1 trillion tax credit and private investment incentives, which promote wasteful spending, also known as cronyism. And not to digress, but now all of a sudden he comes out against that. But what Krugman and and Keynesian and uh, many classical economists with left-leaning political compass obviously fail to comprehend is that the resources being squandered are real resources with real uses by producers and or consumers that would not be wasteful and would allow the priorities and preferences of consumers, individuals that is, to rule supreme. Keynesian and modern mainstream economists in general believe that incentivizing or even directly making malinvestment, so long as it creates jobs, is a smart strategy for long-term stable economic growth. Keynes himself, in his most famous general theory, said, if the treasury were to fill old bottles with banknotes, bury them at a suitable depth in disused coal mines, which were then filled up to the surface with the town's rubbish, and leave it to private enterprise on well-tried principles of laissez-faire to dig up the notes again, the right to do so being obtained, of course, by tendering for leases of the note-bearing territory, There need be no more unemployment, and with the help of repercussions, the real income of the community and its capital wealth would probably become a good deal greater than it actually is. Now, to be clear, Keynes was not calling for this policy specifically, but rather using it as a metaphor for the kind of wasteful and non-productive fiscal stimulus via deficit spending that in his world would spark income growth and wealth in that specific community. And similar to the wasteful spending called for by Krugman in his uh, fake alien attack metaphor, what it really is is just the old broken window fallacy, and it just seems to never go away. Krugman and Keynes see the the results of the wasteful spending, namely the jobs and income resulting from them, and thus the consumption resulting from the income. What they don't see are all the things that are not produced as a result of the real resources being used for the government boondoggle. All the goods that are not consumed as a result of increased prices, increased taxation, fewer opportunities to produce using the resources that have been wasted by government, and thus the lack of employment. Eventually, in Keynes' example, the community not producing anything but simply digging up pieces of paper out of a coal mine would have no trading power and the dollars coming from that community would be rendered worthless. Now, obviously in a country where we all use the same currency, the currency represents 
claims over real resources, and by granting those claims over real resources that, for work that creates no real resources, effectively you're bidding up the price of all the remaining resources higher than it otherwise might be. But the Keynesians will point to aggregate data. They'll point to the jobs numbers. They'll point to the incomes. They'll point to the aggregate demand and consumption. They may point to a bridge. Or in Paul Krugman's world, they may, may point to nuclear warhead stockpiles and atmosphere-piercing lasers used to fight off aliens, which used real resources and human capital to produce. And they'll, they'll look at all the jobs they create, and they'll, they'll say, oh, the, the, look at those jobs. Look, look at all the income that was produced. But that, th- that human capital and those real resources could have been used to produce goods that consumers preferred more and were of higher priorities. <coughs> They never point to the missing goods and services, which you can't really point to. They never point to the missing capital investment and the missing technology that could have been produced with those real resources and with that human capital had it not been commanded by government but left to the entrepreneurs that are judging consumer demand to allocate those resources. Nor do Keynesians or classic economists leaning left Look at the increase in prices, and even if the increase in prices are very slight or even if they're just higher than they otherwise would have been, but you don't actually even get increases, even if you get slightly slower decreases, essentially you're changing the allocation of those resources, and those resources could have been put to uses at a lower price that would have met consumer demands greater had the price been allowed to fall. They don't see the lost productivity, the, the lost capital investment, the lost incomes that result from small increases in prices of the scarce resources across the country. They don't see massive monetary stimulus that states and munis- they don't see the massive monetary uh, stimulus, and they don't see the massive fiscal stimulus that states and muni- municipalities use to command resources as well. They don't see the lost productivity to regulatory costs. And for one reason, because state governments cannot really borrow money, the fact is that you know, states don't do as much or are kind of restrained, and therefore you know, a lot of the Keynesians do call specifically, and, and Krugman has even talked about before, that states are kind of handcuffed by balanced budget amendments or – having governorships, if they don't have a balanced budget amendment, having a governorship that's fiscally conservative or an austerian in his mind. And um, it, 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 oh, the other states can't do what the federal government does from a standpoint of, of monetary stimulus to the Fed. And you know, monetary stimulus goes so far, and then the, the Keynesians call on fiscal stimulus. But State governments can't borrow money at the same level as, as the federal government can. The federal government obviously gets a lot more respect from bond markets and gets a lot you – know, they're able to issue the currency. They're able to print their way if, if need be. They're able to, to use inflation to get out of a, 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 uh, any event in, in which they may owe too much money and not have the, the revenues coming in. They can just inflate their way out of it. Um, but – you know, the other thing that, 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 that a lot of people don't realize is, is that government debt 
the borrowed dollars go directly through a treasury bank auction system and then essentially become monetized, right? So, if, I mean, the Fed, you, you put that, if you're a bank, you go to the, and you're part of the treasury auction, you go and buy bonds from the treasury auction. You may sell some of them off in the market, but you also end up either selling or putting on reserve some with the Federal Reserve in exchange for treasury notes. Uh, or federal, excuse me, Federal Reserve notes, not Treasury notes. You, you trade Treasury notes for Federal Reserve notes. You're basically taking money out of one pocket and putting it in another for the government. Uh, you know, but from and from the perspective of of the type of incentivized private investment that Donald Trump is calling for with tax credits and guarantees and this and that and, and matching funds, you know, that's exactly the kind of uh, the kind of incentives that that created the 2008 financial crisis. And and don't get you know don't get this wrong or, or or misunderstood. Keynesians love that kind of crony capitalism. They love the mortgage guarantees and and stimulating uh, demand for housing and and driving the price of housing through the roof and turning housing into a trading vehicle. Uh, they absolutely love those types of policies. But from the perspective of incentivized private investment, that's that's exactly what caused the 08 financial crisis. When government provides guarantees, grants, subsidies, other incentives, the private market seeking the best return for the lowest risk, seeking the greatest utility at the lowest cost, flocks to purchasing the good service or asset that the government is promoting, foregoing the investment in or consumption of other assets, goods, or services. And government spending or government incentives do not create real economic growth. That is, they don't increase the net number of, of real goods and services on the market. It, what they actually do is create temporary and artificial inflation of prices of certain goods, services, or assets. And this moves other real, real resources to produce the goods and services that are being traded at inflated prices as a result of the government incentive. Prices send signals to entrepreneurs. You know, one of these resources, the most valuable towards achieving utility among the masses and the minorities from individual to every man is human capital. Which can, when you have all these government incentives, the misallocation of human capital can be extremely devastating and have really long-term effects on the progress of economic development and innovation. Now, listeners have sit, sat here. I know I titled, titled the uh, savings versus aggregate demand, and listeners have sat here and listened to me go on and on about how the aggregate demand theory and Keynesian fiscal stimulus is just a modern version of an old fallacy and have heard some of the consequences of such. So if aggregate demand is not an important measure, then what is? And for that, you're going to need to stay tuned. So there's a couple of measures that, that we can look at that will give better sentiment of economic growth, but aggregate data points are not really the concern. Numbers such as employment and median household income and aggregate demand, they can be very misleading. Many of these data points, even if they look good, represent misallocations of real resources that eventually will result in a realignment of prices and losses for the crony capitalists involved and ultimately all taxpayers because we're on the hook. And maybe instead of the aggregate data points calling for wasteful spending, we can kind of just logically think about this and say, hey, maybe what money is spent on does actually matter. 
you know, we, we would, of course, uh, you know, if anything that any individual did, we, we, you know, we would always say that what they spend the money on does actually matter. You know, we wouldn't support, for example, if you have a kid, we wouldn't support them going on a four-year-long treasure hunt with your own money. And when it failed, say, well, it's better, it, you know, it's better than if they had just stayed home at no cost to us. You know, from, from that basic common sense point, you know, you got to move forward to lead and, and understand what leads to real strong and sustainable economic growth that isn't based on a couple of da- aggregate data points. And that's productivity increases. Productivity increases mean that net new consumer goods increase and end consumer costs decrease. And productivity increases from real investment in things like training and research and technological development in the private market where it can be put to work for a, and, and is goal-oriented towards delivering a pr- product or service to consumers that will help them to live a more satisfying life. And to understand why only real savings and real investment leads to real productivity growth, I want to, I want to play this little audio clip that we have from the Foundation for, for, uh, for Economic Education. So I'm going to play this clip really quick. It's about three minutes long, and I'll be right back. The truth about savings and consumption. We've all heard that consumption and spending grow the economy. Turns out that's wrong. In fact, the exact opposite is true. It's savings and production which make the economy grow, not consumption and spending. Here's a fact. Society wouldn't become wealthier if everyone just ran out and bought boats and houses and cars. If that were true, the larger everyone made their credit card debt, the wealthier we'd be. Something seems fishy. Think about it this way. A healthy economy is made up of goods and services people want. If we want to understand why some economies have a lot of goods and others few, we have to ask just how does the amount of goods in an economy grow? In one word, production. Let's look at a family farm. How much food they produce depends on how much they work. When they work, their total amount of food increases. When they eat, their total amount of food shrinks. This consumption isn't a bad thing. It's really the whole point of working in the first place. But if they want to sustain themselves, their production must outpace their consumption. What if they decide to build a plow to help increase their productivity? With a plow, they could produce twice as much in half the time. Well, plows don't just pop out of thin air. It takes time to make them. And while it's being constructed, those workers won't be producing any food. They'll just be consuming it. That means they'll need to save enough food beforehand to eat while they work. Without those savings, there's no way for them to take time to build a plow. They'd run out of food. Once it's finished, they can produce more efficiently, and the total amount of goods will grow. On top of that, because they no longer have to worry about starving, time is freed up. They can now choose to produce other goods or services, or just relax and enjoy their free time. And this is what happens in the large-scale economy. 
Factories and bulldozers don't just pop out of thin air either. They have to be constructed with a pool of savings as well. Here's how it works. In a free market, when people save their money and don't spend it, capital piles up in banks. In turn, this money is lent to entrepreneurs who use it to purchase or create equipment which expands their business and increases their level of production. And get this, the more goods that are being produced, the more savings that become available. As this pile of savings grows, even larger loans become available to even more entrepreneurs. This makes an economy grow exponentially. All of this is made possible only by savings. Without it, there wouldn't be any capital available to borrow. An economic expansion would come to a halt. An economy based on consumption and not production can only last until there are no more goods to consume. To learn more about sound economics, and you know that as that three-minute you know clip explains savings and the subsequent capital investments that are able to be made uh, naturally with a real interest rate that incentivizes entrepreneurs to focus on producer goods that are further out in the time horizon that have real value and resources uh, that are not artificially commanded by the state. What ends up happening is you're or what you, in other words, what you need in order to get that to happen is you need an abundance of goods. You've got to be able to produce more than you consume and have stockpiled, that's what money or savings is, it's stockpiled production. You have to have some, st- some production stockpiled in order to use that production to trade and consume while you develop and, and spend time developing this producer good that may take a lot of time to, to develop, but it's ultimately going to lead to a more efficient production process, a lower, uh, a lower, a lower, uh, production cost per unit, and it, it, consequently a lower consumer cost, and also consequently you're going to end up with higher wages because the labor that you employ becomes more productive. Ultimately, what's in, what ends up happening when you have abundance is that you're, capitalists are able to expand their total volume of sales by offering these products at a lower price. And now people who are poorer and poorer, people who previously couldn't afford their product, can now afford either their first unit of the product or can afford more of the product or service. And it's now available because of the abundance. It's available to more people. It's cheaper for more people. And at the same time, you end up with more and more savings because you're you're able to create more and more of an abundance with the capital equipment and the technological advancement that you make by having that initial pool of savings that you're able to use to consume while you produce a good or while you research something or while you develop something that maybe years down the road, years down the road until it's able to come to market and be used to increase the overall abundance. It takes a lot of time to develop this technology. Now, by just having government do it, there's no real incentive because they don't have to pay any, they have to pay back their, their interest rate, but the interest rate that, that is commanded of, uh, uh, from government bonds, you know, the interest rate that the investors demand from government bonds is based on the pretense that government has the ability to tax and basically 
technically kind of owns all the property underneath us, and and um, they also have the ability to, at least in nominal terms, deliver the nominal amount back. And there's also a strong market for it that's fairly liquid, and ultimately the Fed will will, will kind of backstop it. So it's very different from the private entrepreneur. As true of all businesses, it's true of uh, you know basically what ends up happening is that you end up with 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 shortages. Now in America, we're not on the verge of uh, of, of mass shortages, except for in some pockets throughout the country, with things like housing in uh, Los Angeles, which we did an episode on not too too long ago. But for, free of government interference and free of government stimulus and free of state ownership, whether it's direct or, or otherwise of real resources, consumers and their demand will leave a far smaller gap for misallocations than will government misallocations. All right? there's, there's hundreds of billions of dollars worth of misallocation guided by government every year. And we look back and wonder why we end up having a, a boom and bust cycle, why there's so many crony millionaires and billionaires, why media and, and, and entertainment and leisure keep growing despite measures like poverty and labor force participation. You know, poverty has been going up in, in the last couple of years, especially in states like California, and labor force participation going down. And you know, what, you don't even really look any further than the trillions of dollars annually of government-commanded resources. These are resources that, if left free of government interference, would be used to create real economic growth, real productivity growth, real increases in the standard of living, and, and essentially, ultimately, an abundance of goods. And these are the resources that could be feeding and housing the desperately poor, employing the mass unemployed, Reducing the capital costs to start new businesses, which would spark an entrepreneurial renaissance. And this is true of all goods and of all businesses. We set ourselves up for the boom and bust by allowing prolonged government-guided or forced misallocation of valuable and scarce resources. The government, through direct and hidden costs, has destroyed the saving capacity of the country. The stock market's going up, and you know, Fed, Fed just continues to pump more and more money, and housing prices going up. You know, they, they like that. Politicians love that because it creates a false sense of wealth, and it only sets up for a longer and more violent withdrawal eventually when it comes. Eventually when the bubble pops, the double claims on, claims on assets will create fire sales, and the government will likely start it all over again. They'll just do it again. Soon enough, though, if we don't realize that the only way you have something uh, you know, put aside to develop capital and technology to increase productivity, to increase wages, to increase abundance, to increase wealth is through savings, if we don't realize that, the government will run out of room regarding their ability to borrow and spend. And some of you may be you know, saying, well, what's the difference between government making investments if private investors through banks lending to the government, you know, it's still, you know, ultimately, well, maybe it's, it's private agents that are still deciding, okay, well, the government's still a good bet. We'll still lend. Um, you know, what's the difference between that 
you know, and, and looking at the government's plan to grow the economy and command more tax revenues, and and the, and an investor through a bank lending to entrepreneurs based on the entrepreneurs' plan. And the government doesn't have the power, or doesn't actually. I guess technically they would have the power, but they're not very good at it. We we you know countries across the world have tried it and failed. They're not very good at. It. They usually don't um, have to create greater whether it's directly through higher productivity or through, uh, you know, through, through just hard work and labor or whatever, they don't have to create abundance. They don't have an incentive. They don't have a competitive incentive to create an abundance at a low price while maintaining sustainability and ultimately having, having, you know, not having to take resources from another industry or another use in order to continue to operate that use. So the government doesn't do that, and it, you know they don't have an incentive to really try to create an abundance or to create productivity. The only thing that they want to create are quote-unquote jobs, and they just want to spread money around, point to it, and then move on to another group that, that's hurting at that time to solicit more votes. To, to get reelected, there's no real incentive to create greater wealth simply to achieve certain data points that are at least partially, if not wholly artificial. And further, the, the entrepreneur, if wasteful, if wasteful, if continuously wasteful, like government is, they must come to a reckoning at some point. The entrepreneur, uh, does, unless through you know, cronyism and through the force of government, which again is government, cannot require people to purchase their wasteful product or service. The entrepreneur cannot, through a surface-level scheme, print their own new money and continue to fund their operations. No employees would accept their funny money, especially if they knew how wasteful the business was. If people became aware that the fake alien attack was fake, the only thing that would keep them working for those dollars, instead of taking their talents to more productive tasks, would be the fact that other people are willing to accept those dollars. Eventually, though, if there are no goods or services being produced and there's nothing with which those dollars will buy, shortages occur. The dollars become worth less and less. And don't get me wrong. The U.S. Does, is a vibrant country, but it's not the only game in town anymore. For, for years, we are virtually the only place where you had freedom I, here in Hong Kong and uh, Singapore. But, you know, Australia is now very free economically and they're much closer to china which is going to be a giant consumer market for at least a period of time new zealand is more free than the united states economically uh, chile is a more free country they have some issues with earthquakes but in all these countries you're having significant progress and technological progress that is is outpacing except for in a few areas such as military outpacing the united states so it, it's something to think about, and, and you know, eventually, and we wonder why, you know, we wonder why you have all of this unproductive uh, malinvestment. Part of it has to do with government. I mean, even consumer consumption is influenced by government. Housing prices were driven up by government. There's lots of you remember cash for clunkers that stimulated the price of cars, gave people four thousand dollars for turning in their old car. Get it, crushing the old car, they destroyed the old car, 
and they gave them a new car that was more gas efficient. It also had the side consequence of reducing the amount of revenue that was uh, generated from the gas tax, which we talked about on the last episode. But there's also you know, mass manipulation of allocation of, of productive resources, and eventually it will come back around to bite us in the ass. Eventually it will. And when it does, you can't blame the capitalism. You, you, you can't blame capitalism. You can't blame capitalists. You can't blame the market. You got to understand these malinvestments are a result of central planning and the heavy hand of government and a, a government getting in bed with industry, keeping competitors out and using rules, regulations, using, uh, you know, using low interest rates, using deficit spending uh, to just to kind of stimulate job existence. But whether or not those jobs are productive doesn't mean anything. And to create real wealth, we've got to be able to produce more than we consume. We've got to have goods available to the, for the producers of producer goods. You've got to have a, enough goods available that, that somebody's willing to put some aside, some of their production aside, and use it to invest in things that take a while to develop in order to increase the productivity and increase the, uh, the amount of goods that they can produce. And in turn, what that ends up doing is it makes a future society much more – a society of much greater abundance of goods. And it leads to even greater things. It leads to greater investment. It leads to less poverty, less suffering exponentially, and it leads to more happiness and joy. That's all for tonight, folks. I hope you enjoyed uh, tonight's episode of uh, The Macro View. Check out our past episodes. You can find them at macroviewnews.com slash the podcast. Each episode is accompanied by a little brief description. And I've also got a blog at macroviewnews.com slash the macro view. And you can check out some articles. Sometimes they relate to the the, the uh, episodes that I'm, I'm recording. Sometimes they don't. Um, I felt that the blog page was too cluttered. So if you've been there before, I, I'm cleaning it up a bit and the podcast will be available on its own page. And if you haven't already, don't forget to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the macro view and follow us on Twitter at the macro view. There's going to be some big announcements coming up and some more great topics covered in the weeks ahead. I'll be continuing to do the Monday through Friday show about this length. Tune in tomorrow night to hear me debunk the virtue, the supposed virtues of yet another way politicians crush the competition of their cronies, and that is corporate subsidies. Have a great night, folks.